we're back with a bonus Also Rams episode. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Mary. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. We're not alone. <laughs> we're not alone. <laughs> a specter is haunting us. <laughs> We've got the very special Dario of The Cinematologist. Hey, Dario. Good evening to both of you. Thanks thanks very much for uh, allowing me to come and disturb your uh, feminine energy podcast here. I don't know how that's going to turn out, but I'm looking forward to it. Haunted by the spectre of testosterone. <laughs> it's all good. You're very welcome. Dario, yeah, well, we've been on your podcast before as guests, and this is your first time on Projections Podcast. Yeah, I, I was actually thinking back, am I the first guest on, I know you, you speak to lots of people and you've got different streams and what have you, but I'm, am I the first guest on projections or am I just imagining that? We've had some before, but not for a few series. Yeah. Right, gotcha. So you're the first guest of Erotic Cinema. Right. Okay. Um, well, what a choice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been a great season. I've loved it. I've, I've really enjoyed all the episodes. I think my, my, the... The Basic Instinct and Showgirls episode and the E2 Mama Tambien and Nine and a Half Weeks were my two favorites. I really like the sort of discussion on taboo. I think that's really interesting in terms of why 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 we watch erotic yeah. cinema and, and you know, we're, we're, we're sort of obsessed really generally about the relationship between cinema and, and sex in a broad sense. Mm, yeah. Mm, yeah, definitely. Before we dive into this discussion today, because obviously this is an also Rams episode where we cover kind of titles that we didn't get to in the normal series. Before we get to that, Dario, could you tell us a little bit about the Cinematologist podcast for those listeners of ours who haven't actually heard it before? Uh, we strongly recommend all of you following the Cinematologist, essential listening for cinephiles. And also, like, what are your interests in cinema and um, and what do you do as a like, what do you do for a living? And what's wow. your star sign? <laughs> wow, there's a lot there. Can I just get my pad out and note all that down? And we, we, didn't we, when we did the uh, the joint episode, we discussed that my star sign was Aquarius. And I, I you know, mm-hmm. it, that fell on, on very bad terms. Apparently, it's not very good for, for, for you two for me to be Aquarius. So uh, that's fine. But Neil's is not much better, I don't think, from, from what I remember. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But we're, you know, we're we're kind of self-obsessed Aquarians, I think. So uh, apparently, you know. <laughs> um, I have to take your word for all all of this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I uh, I uh, lecture in film at Ravensbourne University, which I've just started. Actually, I've just been there for three months. I was at Brighton before that, and then before that, I was at Falmouth University, where I met Neil, which is, who is the um, co-presenter, co-producer of the Cinematologist, and we started that back in in 2015 kind of jumping on the bandwagon of when podcasts were sort of becoming more mainstream and um yeah we just we just became fast friends when he joined the university down there and you know we started having you know lots of conversations about the kinds of films that we liked and the kinds of films that we wanted to show the students and other people and you know we were listening to lots of film podcasts and we kind of thought there there wasn't one that that sort of drew upon um academic theory and and the sort of way that we talk about films but also make it accessible and also have a kind of implied screening in the middle of it so from the beginning we had live podcasts and we'd record an introduction and then a Q&A afterwards and you you both have been at um, those live live events mm-hmm. being co-hosts mm-hmm. which has been great 
and yeah, and we've we've just gone from strength to strength. Really, you know, sort of seven years later, we're still going. We do lots of different types of episodes. We've we've gone on to make like audio documentaries and episodes from film festivals and collaborations and all sorts of uh, different things. So yeah, and we just we just finished um, a double episode on the Sight and Sound uh, greatest films of all time poll which Mm -hmm. they invited us to to sort of collaborate with them on and we it was great because we dropped it exactly when the poll was sort of published and it's actually been our most popular episode so it's kind of double the amount of listens that that any other episode has has had in like two weeks so it's been interesting to to watch (laughs) that happen oh amazing yeah that's great considering probably like lots of podcasts are talking about it like it's really really good that you guys have got such a like huge listen- listening listenership to that also I can te- I can say that like I when I did an interview at movie like years ago when I finished my master's some someone there recommended the cinematologist to me that's when I first heard of it so you guys have got such a fan base from inside the film industry as well which is nice yeah, it's funny because, I mean, I don't know how you guys sort of perceive your audience, but we're, we're always kind of thinking, you know, do, who listens? Does anybody listen really, you know? And it's it's just really interesting how we don't have a lot of interaction really in terms of, I mean, we're on social media um, and, you know, we've got email and we've got a Patreon channel, but I think we've got a really sort of strong consolidated audience that are just there no matter what. And, and whenever we kind of visit... Um, whether it's conferences or institutions like the BFI or MUBI or whatever, that people are always saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we know about it or we listen wow. to it. And, mm-hmm. and so that that's always kind of gratifying, of course. Maybe your listeners are all introverts and they don't really, that's why they don't really get in touch with you. <laughs> They're just <laughs> all quietly, just... <laughs> quietly listening. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're just scared as well. It's like, oh, we don't want to get in the way of these guys. <laughs> <laughs> and actually just you know, as a, by way of introduction, do let us know, like, what would you say are your favorite kind of movies, like favorite directors? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I like to think I'm kind of less of, a, I mean, me and Neil have this discussion about fandom all the time and he's much more of a fan than I am. I, you know, I, I, I like to have this sort of sense of aspiration to objectivity, even though I know everything is subjective, but that, that sort of sense of taking every film on its own merits. Um, but but like say for example you know I, I, I'm I was influenced a lot by at film school by Godard and uh, the French New Wave and stuff like that I mean I know a lot of sort of film film school nerds will say that but um, you know in, in the in the list I have films like um, The Hustler and Blade Runner and I really love the films of Leos Carax who is a sort of um, mm. post French New Wave filmmaker who is very sort of weird and controversial like him but I like you know the classics as well Tokyo Story is one of my favorite films of all all time mm-hmm. um and I, I kind of like stuff that that is philosophical in the sense that, it, that there is a, a kind of wider maybe more universal m- maybe more transcendental kind of point being being made um so yeah a, l- a little bit sort of worthy and pretentious stuff that's kind of what I tend to like <laughs> although I have to say that um you know that I think that all movies are worthy of attention, and I'm really not one for saying. You know, I mean, interestingly enough, after doing a list, the idea of doing sort of of talking about movies as being this movie is better than that movie. I'm mm. always interested in just trying to figure out what a movie is trying to do, what's in, what its intention is, 
and whether that intention succeeds or what, what what's wor- worth thinking about because of it. And some of the films that we're going to talk about today are kind of on <laughs> that, you know, on that sort of spectrum where I didn't love them or anything, but they definitely are worth kind of thinking about and talking about. Yeah, I was going to say, your list is is not worth, it's not like worthy films. Oh, no, know? not like, at all. <laughs> which is really interesting. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, some of them appealed to me right away. <laughs> have to say so because i'm like the least like worthy film person in the world so i was like "Ooh, crime and murder and sex (laughs) exactly exactly what i want yeah it was funny because it just uh, when when you said you know pick three and and i didn't sort of think about oh i want something to kind of encapsulate you know my sort of identity but really they kind of have done but 25 years ago you know because they're all from (laughs) the sort of 90s really when you know i would have been in my 20s so maybe that's saying something about what I consider my relationship to erotic cinema is right now, <laughs> i.e. non-existent maybe. <laughs> or maybe, I don't know, I feel like a couple of times during this series I've mentioned to Mary that this film made me feel teenagery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I wonder if maybe like erotic films, and I think like some of, some of Mary's films as well would have been films, Mary, that you saw like mm. really early on in your film watching career. Yeah. And I wonder if just like we're more erotically open what the younger we are, like when we don't have kind of, you know, emotional baggage and... Um, no, that's you know. not the case for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, it's the reverse. It's the reverse. Okay, then my theory falls to the ground. I mean, I think your theory is probably universally correct. I'm just the exception to the rule. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But um, yeah, just that kind of like, or like, I don't know, eroticism is like new, I guess, when you're Mm. like a certain age. So things are like really, yeah, all exciting. And I I think the other thing as well uh, is particularly when you're a a, a male in the 21st century reaching the age of 50, you are kind of, I don't know if handicapped is the right word, but sort of going onto social media and starting to spout out about your erotic proclivities is not the thing that is looked favorably on these days. So maybe (laughs) we can talk about that in this space because, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely, you know, it's looked upon favorably here, Dario. Well, I know you guys will take, will take all everything that I might say in the right way, but you know know what I'm saying? Mm. It's kind of like, it's like you know there is this sort of thing that once you get over a certain age it's like creepy for a guy to be just sort of talking about sex really no you're in good company (laughs) (laughs) well um that's so interesting uh let's since you're the guest maybe i don't know how do we want to structure this who wants to go first and talk about their because we all went through like the list it was a movie list actually um, that I had circulated as, as a suggestion. Um, that's where I picked my choices from for the also runs. And so, yeah, I'm curious, how do we, how do we structure it? Let's start with Dario's. Okay. okay. That's a good idea, because he, he's, as he's the guest. As he's the guest, yeah. yeah. Uh, do you want me to kind of just do all three in a row or just one and then we can talk about it and then, and then a second one? Um, yeah. I don't know. Well, like, yeah. Let's, let's ha- announce your three okay. and then we'll go through. Yeah, good okay, idea. So the, the, the three that I suggested were Hamon Hamon from mm. 1992, directed by Bigas Luna. Uh, sea of Love from 1989, directed by Harold Becker. And Species from 1995, directed by Roger, Roger Donaldson, which we just watched the other night and my, my um, partner hadn't seen it. And we just had an absolute ball. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Amazing. Amazing. I hadn't really, I heard of Hamon Hamon, yep. but I hadn't heard of the other two. 
Oh, okay. That's they were totally new to me. And I have to admit that for the purposes of this recording, I did kind of skim watch all of these films because I didn't right. have enough time to do my homework. Um, <laughs> so I um, maybe don't have like the best grip on the plot of all of them. Um, but yeah, as, um, but still, like I was really pleased to be introduced to Sea of Love because it yeah. seems like um, sort of the, the opposite film of a favorite film of mine in the cut. Um, yeah, that's which is like because this one is you know like the the policeman sort of thinks he's sleeping with maybe potentially the murderer, and in in the car it's like that it's that the policeman could potentially be the murderer and she's sleeping with him. So yeah, I don't know, kind of echoes of that. Which yeah, and also know. echoes of Basic Instinct a little bit on, on those lines as well. Yeah. Hmm. So do you want me to? Shall I start with that one then? I mean, this is yeah, go for it. Yeah, I mean, um, this is. Al Pacino. I mean, this is the reason I picked this because it's mainly is because I want to talk about the casting. And I remember the tweet that you guys sent out about who, who in kind of film land just, you know, would just, just, just destroy you. You couldn't even talk to them. They're so hot that it goes into the sublime rather than them just being beautiful. Remember that, mm-hmm. that conversation that you were having, which was. And that's uh, Al Pacino uh, for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> My Al Pacino, yeah, yeah. Um, Interesting. Well, it really truly is unique for everyone. <laughs> that would take this this uh, podcast in a very unusual uh, direction. That's for sure. um, so that the yeah, I mean, it's it, it really does sit in this sort of era, doesn't it? Of of erotic thrillers. Never mind just erotic movies, but erotic thrillers. And I think that one of the things, sort of looking back now, is is this era where mainstream movie stars seem to be quite. I don't know if happy is the word, but up for being in what are essentially a sort of trashy B-movie neo-noir thrillers with with a bit of sex in. And, and this stars Al Pacino, as you're saying, as a cop who is uh, um, investigating you know, a serial killer. And he's got the comedy sidekick of uh, John Goodman with him. And they set up this sort of scheme to try and... Because the, 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 the killer is answering personal ads in the newspaper. So they... they the, the cops place their own ad in the newspaper and set up like a series of dates. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and this sort of pans out where Al Pacino, you know, in the early scenes, he's having these these dates with these women and there's cops on the other tables or watching. Uh, but there's one woman who's played by Ellen Barkin who comes in and she doesn't, it, what they're trying to do is get the fingerprints on the glass so they can match it to the murder weapon. But she doesn't take a drink and they don't match up any of the other prints. So they're still looking for this killer, and she kind of blows him off. She thinks he, he's a bit of an asshole in in the uh, in their meeting together. But then they they kind of accidentally meet up at a later date, and you know she sort of gives him a second chance, and they start into this affair. So therefore, because he hasn't got the fingerprint, and they haven't caught the killer yet, you're kind of is she isn't she the killer? And she you know she's she's got very much that sort of sexy femme fatale vibe going on and the reason i think this is just interesting is because obviously al pacino is this great big star that everybody knows admittedly at this point in his career he was probably sort of not at a high point let's say mm. it was well before he in 1995 which is kind of a big comeback yeah but i just think that i don't know what you guys think but i think ellen barkin absolutely just steals this movie she's absolutely mm. incredibly sexy and and epitomizes i think the, the difference between beauty and sexiness in this movie she's got an incredible vibe the way she moves around around space and and and, and it's kind of completely different to al pacino who to me is incredibly unsexy in this film mm. <laughs> 
is really unsexy in this film. I think he's like really eclipsed by her. Um, and yeah, I found that I also find it really unfair that um, Al Pacino gets to go on all the dates. Like, and it's just like, I, I, like what's wrong with John Goodman? Like, yeah. I, I would rather go on a date with John Goodman. Like, 100%. He has to be the waiter. It's not fair. Um, <laughs> and I also felt like I feel disappointed by the the like plot twist of this film as well. Yeah. Um, the kind of like just like this character sort of like introduced, and I am just disappointed that she wasn't a murderer because her sexual power is so like is so great yeah, that it kind amazing. of felt it like it was diminished by the the fact that it wasn't her in the end. Hmm. What would you say is the hottest bit in the movie for you? Um, probably it's probably in the supermarket. Mm. Um, but then the problem is that quite, I think it's quite soon after that you get a shot of Al Pacino putting his trousers on and he's got these horrible ill-fitting Y fronts on. So (laughs) it's really weird because it's kind of like you've got Ellen Barkin and then you've got Al Pacino and, and they're they're completely sort of clashing in Mm. a way. I mean, there is a chemistry there, but you just kind of think to yourself, I mean, it's really weird because it's, it's not like. Is it like sort of Michael? I mean, I, you know, you tell me. I don't think Michael Douglas is particularly sexy, but <laughs> he gets away with it more than Al Pacino does in this in in this movie. Um, and I don't know whether I kind of it it it, it kind of. Under, I mean, the the plot is not strong at, at all. You know what I mean? It, it's like mm-hmm. the the way the killer gets revealed is just sort of an afterthought at the at the end of the movie, and it is built around the the, the sort of. It, what we're supposed to interpret as as this absolute spark in you know, a sexual spark of their relationship, but really, it's all about Ellen Barkin kind of walking around in the in you know in that coat that she's she, that she's got on, mm-hmm. and then the way that she's moving um, when when she's in the shop because she works she's sort of a manager of a shoe store, and all of these sort of clothes and movements and gestures are are just so amazing to to kind of watch from an aesthetic point of view, but yet it's not overly. You know, it doesn't. It, I mean, there. Are, you know, there is some nudity and stuff in there, but it doesn't mm. play that as a kind of. Yeah, we're just we're just having a look at her body, right. without any sort of uh, context around it. That's why I think it's very erotic, rather than you know pushing the boundaries of sort of softcore porn or anything like that. Yeah, mm. I, that's exactly what I thought as well. Like, and and I think in a way it's sort of reflecting the inner you know the mechanism of of eroticism and sexuality because it is that element of surprise that is the turn on the animating force it's not necessarily what you would expect so i think the film actually achieves that really well you know as you said earlier ellen barkin like she she does sort of steal the scene and becomes the object of desire as as it were it's like very naturalistic Mm, yeah definitely in terms of the way that erotic films are, are are set up, it seems to me that there is a lot, there's a pattern in the way that, I mean, again, maybe it's to do, just to do with the fact that, that most of the films are made by men mm. and that, you, you know, the camera is pointed at the women for, you know, for, for, for obvious reasons, right? But then the male protagonists often tend to be not particularly hot. You know, there are exceptions <laughs> to that, but do you know what I mean? It's really interesting how the... the the, the the sexuality and the eroticism of the of the female characters is often n- not just because they are beautiful or sexy or erotic, but it's because there's no competition for them mm. in the men. Yeah, yeah that's true. It's and true. 
it is like yeah i don't know why that is i don't know if it's as straightforward as it you know the films are made by men so it's like mm. a male fantasy of any like schlub being able to attract like these dream women but i don't think that is it can't be that simple yeah um yeah that seems to, yeah I, i agree with you sarah it can't be that obvious there has to be something else at work there and i, I haven't really understood it fully as of yet but there is that pattern for sure Mm-hmm. maybe it's maybe it's the kind of history of the genre because a lot of these do have a sort of noirish mm. uh, element to them and you know you go back historically then you know that that there is that sense that the the any woman who exudes a powerful sexuality one that she is ostensibly in control of and is for want of a better word using mm-hmm. then that within the within the narrative drive of ne- of noir or neo noir that then is the device of that then is to subordinate the male who is a is yeah. a gumshoe and it happens in fatal attraction of course and also in you know that really terrible one with dark waters is it with anna diarmas and um, ben affleck who's the same director of course so it it's kind of that's the mechanism by which their the control of the male is is you know is utilized let's say hmm interesting Yeah, I think maybe it just kind of continues that fact that we found like all this kind of female jouissance in all of these films. Sure. So, yeah, interesting. Well, I don't know. I'm I like I'm I I I too miss the um the trashy movie. Yeah. <laughs> um and I hope that a trashy movie era will reveal itself once again. <laughs> Same. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell us about your second choice. Um Shall we go Hamon Hamon next? Yeah. Yeah. So again, <laughs> it does relate back to the, the that that notion of when does erotic cinema kind of become a a, a thing if you're a movie lover, do you know what I mean? And and mm-hmm. what impact does does that have? And I just remember, you know, a lot of this for me when I was when I was in my 20s was about seeing Penelope Cruz for the first time. I know we were tweeting a, about this again on your mm-hmm. on this sort of beautiful and the sublime um Uh, subject but yeah this is so i think this was the first film that i saw her in and you know she's very young in this in in this film obviously but there's something that 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 for me the quality is that she kind of occupies both those uh personas of being possibly innocent but also vampish maybe yeah. intellectual but also hedonistic she's sensual but she can also do a kind of realist persona as well mm-hmm. um and i think this is kind of captured in this in this film at a, a very early stage in her career and interestingly you know she's um co-starring with javier bardem in this who again mm-hmm. is i mean i mean this is a, an exception to what we've just talked about because i think they are both very sexy mm-hmm. and, you know he's very yeah. young and he's playing a you know he's, he's sort of a, a satire of spanish masculinity to the point where he plays this you, you know he's work he's basically curing ha- um hams which is a very obviously traditional thing in spain but then he's an underwear model at the same time it's a really weird comedy soap opera a sort of comedy of excess and um the director biggest luna is a sort of even more over the top exaggerated version of almodovar so the whole the whole film is a kind of um satire of spanish machismo and and is undermining and and pointing out the ridiculousness of the pieties of of family relations in in kind of post Franco Spain I think. But so it's it, it's set in this small northern town and this rich family 
owns an underwear factory and the the the, the parents are the kind of matriarch and patriarch of the town and they have a very sort of uh, idiotic son called Jose Luis and he's in love with Sylvia who works in the factory and obviously she's the kind of pretty factory girl as it were um but Jose Luis's overbearing mother disapproves of this relationship because Sylvia is um her mother it runs the local brothel and has basically slept with all the men in the town. Um, so the mother then hi- uh, hires Raul, who's played by Javier Bardem, who um, he, he she hires him to try and seduce Sylvia to, to pull her away from, from the sun. And there's loads of kind of symbolic stuff going on. There's a really um, odd use of kind of animals in this movie particularly the pig so you know it's called Hamon Hamon and then this this really weird scene where um Bardem kind of shoves garlic up a pig's ass to make it go crazy (laughs) to kind of distract from or to bring the attention to to uh, Penelope Cruz's character don't ask you have to see the movie I can't really explain it and then there's a nude bullfighting scene so it really exaggerates this idea of what sex is in an animalistic way i think mm-hmm. and it's really sort of in many ways in bad taste the film and it's be, but it's being deliberately so so i think it's just really it, it, it's really enjoyable to watch really really funny and there's a lot of sort of symbolism about about sex going on there and yeah and, and i just think that the the two leads you know a, a sort of young portion in their career just yeah. so uh, show an amazing charisma that you know, obviously takes them to hollywood and all the rest of it yeah, it's crazy that they didn't fall in love on this film. But they, they <laughs> I fell was in thinking love, like, that. Years and years later. Like, it's crazy. It's amazing. But also, I recently re- watched um, Vanilla Sky again because oh, yeah. it's on Netflix. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I just couldn't stop thinking about Cameron Diaz going, she looks like a moth, David. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. she really does. Yeah. <laughs> like, She's so like true. the hottest moth of all time. Yeah, though, like a gorgeous, know? beautiful moth. But like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I love Cameron Diaz's character in Villa Sky. I think she's very wrong. Yeah. Have you seen the original? Have you seen the Spanish version? I actually haven't. No. Oh, yeah. You should check that out. So good. Yeah. I actually don't mind um, the remake, actually, to be honest. I don't mind. Yeah, but, yeah but, I agree. It's. I think it stands up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like it's very uncomfortable, but it's kind of meant to be. Like Tom Cruise's yeah. performance, like makes you cringe, like all the way yeah. through. But <laughs> it's I think supposed that's, to. I think that's Cameron Diaz's best performance as well. So that's, do I. That, that scene in the car with Tom Cruise <laughs> is just unbelievably good. It's so good. Like I just, I'm such a huge fan. What's she called? Julie. Julie something. I can't remember. Yeah, oh God, Julie... I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, like they keep saying her full name yeah, all the yeah, time. Yeah. Like I can't remember. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Julie Gianni. Julie Gianni. That's it. Yeah. You slept why. with Julie Gianni. Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, should we just make, do the talk about Vanilla Sky? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's quite erotic. Yeah. <laughs> I think we need to actually come up with a reason to program that film in our future yeah. series because it is definitely yeah. that's such a good idea. I'm going to write it down on the wish list. Yeah. The sky. Oh, tech! It's, it's <laughs> yes, kind of a tech. Of course, yeah, it is a techie film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just a reminder, guys, when we put out the poll, we vote tech because <laughs> you know, don't you love women in tech? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, big time. STEM guys, support STEM. <laughs> we'll be we'll be women in STEM. The problem is you might, you might be opening yourself up to a lot of, uh, you know, um, of a certain type of uh, male criticism, let's say. You'll get like a bunch of coders. Like. Exactly, all the coders saying, well, you didn't understand that, that movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh, amazing. <laughs> but I mean, just on the topic of um, Hamon Hamon, what I loved most about it was that it was com- it did not take itself seriously. It's extremely absurd. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And to me, that is really essential quality in you know skin flicks, erotic cinema, which is you know what I mean. Sarah made me discover Tinto Brass, and that's also very present in his world. So it's like. What do you think about, I guess what I'm really asking is like tying it into the current culture, (laughs) Um, because I have seen this discourse online, people being bent out of shape because they think that sex scenes in movies are gratuitous and, you know, we we should try and like refrain from having sex in movies. And a movie like Hamon Hamon just completely breaks that rule, you know? So I just wondered what you thought of, of that. Again, I suppose that, that there is a lot of chatter around the idea of what, what is sex in movies for. Mm. And you have to be open to the suggestion that, you know, if, if I mean, if you take psychoanalytic film theory, as you, as you guys know, you know, that there is, a, there is a part of that that argues that the reason we enjoy movies is because of a fundamental erotic pleasure in looking, mm. you know, and whether it's just the pure pleasure of that or something that's to do more with voyeurism or something that's to do more with fetishism, that sense of a drive to, to, to look and to see then means that cinema itself becomes, you know, an object of fetishism, the actual process of watching itself. Mm. So if you, if you acknowledge that or you think there's any credence to that at all, then it's completely obvious that, that we should always be searching for, as viewers, some kind of erotic fixation whatever yeah. that might wh- whatever that might be you know and obviously when it's ma- when it's made manifest in the film itself like say if there's actually sex happening or is some kind of um, erotic symbolism that, that that takes place then that that in and of itself is totally legitimate if you like, like i say if you were sort of agree with with that yeah. summation of film of film watching but yeah yeah i, I think that there is a quite a lot of again sort of po-faceness and taboo about the idea of why does something need to be in a movie if it's not say driving the plot along Mm. or it doesn't um say for example it doesn't somehow fit seamlessly within the flow of a movie like say for example you know one of the, the the great things and interesting things about films is when they take the time to have an aside where oh actually we're just going to show you some sex now that isn't really necessary you know what I mean? It's, yeah. and, and and that sometimes can make a uh, make a movie. It's like you you think think of something like "Don't Look Now," for example. Mm, I, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you remember the sex scene in that. It's completely, I do remember. Yeah, oh my yeah, God, it's, it's like famous. I mean, it's absolutely. But I mean, it's it's so interesting because I think the way that it's the way that it's cut together yeah. is actually really tender and you know erotic at the same time. But it builds the idea that that their love for one another is so intimate and so strong and so physical that it makes the power of what happens to the child even more you know profound i think and 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 similarly even in in a film that you could say that's quite throwaway like uh hamon hamon that mm. the scene where she the rain comes down and she goes into the diner and they just start having sex is incredibly erotic because it's been building up so f- that's you true. know so much through the movie and it and it, and it has to be <laughs> for want of a better word, fulfilled for the audience, I think, mm. in this film. It's true. You don't want cinematic blue balls. <laughs> um, 
I loved actually what you said, like the idea of like searching for the erotic. It's really like lovely, like thing to be doing. And also it's so interesting. It's just, it's such a, it's such a pretense that idea of, you know, driving the narrative because people aren't like keeping watch for other non-sexual things that don't drive the narrative. Mm. Yeah. We're perfectly happy to have sort of all sorts of kind of slow cinema with mm. shots that don't tell any kind of story. And no one yeah. complains about that. So it's just a, it's just an excuse. This yeah. driving the narrative thing. But it's um, also it's also on a on a completely different type of film. But it's similar in the way that the major blockbusters are so sexless. Mm. It's kind of like that means that they're soulless at the same time. Yeah. You know, because nobody nobody in those movies is presented to us as thinking erotically. None of the characters mm. are. So therefore, why should we think erotically and why, why should we be invested? And I think it relates to what you said, Mary, about what's going on right now. Everybody wants to be comfortable and protected. Mm. You know, nobody mm. wants to, to confront, you know, things like sexuality and the erotic in, in areas where they're not easily kind of bounded. And I think people want movies that don't, don't push taboos and don't, mm. you know, question things like relationships of power in ways that 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 are not within the boundaries of the politics that we would expect if you see what I mean so yeah. that was a bit rambly but hopefully no 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 it's totally clear can I ask you guys a question like mm. in a, a tangential question yeah. um I was just thinking about like films that don't have any sex in them and I was thinking about Tarantino Mm. Um, who whose films I find really thrilling, especially Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that I loved so so much. How do you think he does that to like make films so soulful and thrilling without any like any <laughs> indication that any of the characters are having sex? Like, which is I think most of the films then like they're really yeah. sexless, aren't they? Yeah, like in Pulp Fiction, it's it's only ever like Mia Wallace and Vincent Vega go on that date. Yeah. And there's like a reference to foot massaging. Oh yeah, yeah, and they crush you know? on each other, but that's it. They just crush. That's on each it. Other. Yeah, he has got a fetish for feet. That's for sure. Oh, for oh, sure. That's true. Maybe because his because like his maybe because his sexuality is not penetrative driven, <laughs> penetration driven. <laughs> it's not phallocentric. Mm. <laughs> so maybe wow. that's why. Maybe that's why his films are so thrilling without anyone actually boning. Like, I mean, I think it's interesting because in <laughs> earlier films, there, there is stuff there that's, pre that, that's present. But again, it, it's really, it's got that Tarantino-esque kind of, I don't know, satire is not the, the wrong word, but it's, it's, it's a skew to, to being able to understand what he's trying to get out. Like, say, for example, at the beginning of Reservoir Dogs, there's that whole story about like a virgin, mm. what like a virgin means. And that's, a, that, you know, that's a, about sexuality in, in the broad sense of the word. But it's like, it's just a mechanism for him to be able to sort of show off uh, his writing, you know, he, how fast his writing is and, and to be able to, to to tell what he thinks is a pithy story that really isn't when you think about it a little bit, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, no, I agree. It's, it, they, they, are, they are sexless movies. And I mm. think, again, I, I mean, I, it's interesting because he's just not interested in that. And then when you've got some, someone like, say, for example, Kill Bill star, uh, Uma Thurman. Uma Thurman. So U Uma Thurman in other roles is incredibly erotic, yeah. but just not in in you know even even how aesthetically interesting she might be in the in the film. Mm. She's not erotic at all. I don't think. Mm. Well, I I mean I guess my only theory is that Tarantino is like just a film freak 
and totally from the heart, like without even, I mean, I know he's written a film theory book now, but I think that he just has like a bona fide passion and enthusiasm for, for film. And he watches everything like yeah. from lowbrow to highbrow. Like he's, that does not discriminate. He worked in a video store, you know, before, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be- before being a film director. So I think he just is a film nerd and he loves the medium. Like he has a genuine infatuation with it. And it's just, I think that's the eroticism. It's his passionate love affair with cinema yeah. that, you know what I mean? He's that like, like mm. he's like polymorphously cinephilic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well yeah. said. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Good for you, Quentin. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, no, I'm I mean, sorry would make for a... taking you guys on that little detail. No, no, but I think can you imagine him making a, an erotic thriller though? I mean, what would that be like? I I just can't I just can't even get my head around. No. See, he could take he's uh, what you're saying there is exactly what he is because he takes genres. And he knows everything about every genre. Mm-hmm. You know, he can make. He's not. You know, he's a white guy, but he can make black exploitation yeah. films. And like, you know, people have criticized him for that, but he did it anyway. So, mm. be interesting to take on the a sort of more erotic genre and see what happened. I, I think he would. Sub- I would love to see that. I think he would subvert it. He would do the first foot fetish erotic thriller <laughs> in cinema history, and he would make. I re- I think like no, like everyone is so po faced about him, like you know, putting women's feet in films as if he's like some kind of rapist, like. Yeah. Um, but like it would. It, I think it would. It would be a game changer for foot fetishism. I think it would yeah. put like put it up on the mainstream. <laughs> like, yeah. More than it is now. I've already thought of a title for for his film. Go on. <laughs> the High Heel Killer. Ah, that's so good. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, oh my god. Quentin, oh, if you're listening. I can't live without it now. <laughs> like, I'm gonna be disappointed for the rest of my life. <laughs> You can put that on your long list of uh, suggestions yeah. that now need to be made. It's going to the top. To the top. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell us, Dario, what was your third option? So the th- I've realised I've been going on for ages here. So Not I, at I all. I mean, this, this is, uh, yeah, I really wanted to do this one. I mean, I had a couple of other much more pretentious type titles, but I just thought this would be just such a laugh to, to talk about, and that's Species. So mm. this is just... Essentially, a, 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 an alien contact is made, and um, they send these aliens. They send down the kind of formula to create a DNA human uh, alien splice, which obviously the haplen, ha, hapless human scientists do, mm. and they create this young girl who then they realize that they can't control. So the, at the beginning of the movie. It's uh, you get these scenes of this this young girl who's in a kind of glass cage, basically ab- about to be exterminated, and she, you know, it's not giving anything away because it happens in the first five minutes. She escapes and mm. then sort of metamorphoses metamorphosizes very quickly into essentially, <laughs> you know, a, a hot supermodel, <laughs> <laughs> you know, as, as, as you do, you know, and, and the rest of the movie is the, the this sort of. Uh, clandestine government agency of scientists hiring a, a group of uh you know hunters to try and track her down and kill her and that's that's basically it um but it's just i mean what's really funny is you, you know on, on the credits at the beginning you realize it's hr geiger designs the the special effects for the alien right mm-hmm. and obviously one of the you know most respected sort of sci- sci-fi people in terms of designing the alien in the alien movies and 
you know, everybody thinks that's just so, I mean, I mean, realistic is not the word, but it's believable that that, that alien is what it is. But the special effects in this film are so terrible and the alien design is so laughable. It's really, really funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then, I mean, it, it, what it really comes down to this film is that when, when faced with an incredibly hot woman, men are completely defenseless. It's like the, the, <laughs> the she takes on the mask of, like I say, a, a, you know, a supermodel. And the, the whole of the, the, the thing is, I mean, the, the device of the movie, she's trying to, she wants to get pregnant. She's got this, you know, a desire to have a baby that's on, yeah, on, on overdrive. <laughs> so she's searching for basically anyone that she can find. And, you know, it, it, she keeps either getting disturbed or she, she meets guys who are the wrong type and ends up killing them. Um, but what's really funny is through the movie, she learns the kind of wiles of what it means to be a woman and seduce, mm. uh, seduce men. And like all the men are just completely <laughs> helpless. It's like, Oh yeah, do you want to sleep with me? Yeah, okay, yeah, will you're gorgeous? Why not? You know, there's sort of various v- variations of that. And then at the end, you know, when she sort of uh, she does get pregnant, and um, sort of all hell breaks loose towards the end. There's this just incredibly terrible special effects, but are so funny where she's got these breasts that so- sort of fire <laughs> out the alien breasts that fire out penis snakes, which I thought was really symbolically interesting. You know, it's kind of like the, a man's worth nightmare where, you know, you're, you, you've you got these incredible breasts, but then the penises come out and strangle <laughs> you to death, which, you know, is the comic irony of that was not lost on me. But yeah, I mean, I'm really interested just to, to hear what you guys think. I mean, that image is perfect for Projections podcast. 100%. <laughs> I mean, thank you for introducing this film. Like, let's talk about this film at some point. It was fab. Yes, <laughs> we have to. I, I think it's interesting because to me, it just seemed to be about like, the male anxiety about just how momentary men's part in reproduction Mm. is like how basically sort of disposable they are in that process because it's about and it's like about these men being like absolutely terrified this woman like is going to have a baby and just do like get pregnant by someone just do whatever she wants yeah with this but you know like she can just like that is what the thing like women need some sperm then they can just they can go away and have your baby like somewhere else and raise it and do whatever the hell they want with it and it's just all these men like trying desperately to stop that from happening like yeah and uh yeah i don't know that's kind of what i took from it I love that. Yeah, no, I mean, um, for me also, it's it sort of ties in a bit with what you were saying, Sarah, but for me, it's just the representation of the female sexual power and her kind of like superpower at, sed- mm. at seduction, yep. which seems to be perceived as a threat within the phallocentric order. Mm. So when our society is organized around the desires of, of men, um, the fact that a woman can... You know, I mean, it's really interesting that she should be represented as an alien, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like she, because we, because as women, we are alien inside mm. the phallocentric order. You know, there is no space carved out for us in a society that is literally organized around what men want. Um, yeah, so, yeah. so I think it's kind of theoretically perfect. I love if the way that you so elevated trash. that, Mary. Like we went from <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. snakes to men be like this to phallocentric order. <laughs> was, <laughs> we, we built the blocks and got there. <laughs> I think if, if if it wasn't so trashy, you could you could definitely sort of really go to town on a lot of that mm. for sure. Mm. And you know that 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 idea of the um, 
it's it does the does the alien contact kind of and the the the, the sort of way that she changes is it a sort of feminist film in that sense mm-hmm. so that the you know she is the the kind of absolute epitome or extreme version of femininity as total power wow which there which then you know obviously has to be controlled and shut down a by yeah. the government but but by patriarchy more more generally and all of her superpowers are exaggerated versions of you know of femininity yeah. anyway you know absolutely i think it is feminist and I, the fact that she is literally an in- interloper you mm. know tells us where feminine sexuality feminine subjectivity is imagined within phallocentrism and it is literally the satellite thing that collapses onto an established language and discourse mm. but so. it's also it's also quite critical as well because it's not just oh you know pro-feminist in that way because mm. it really does show that she kills any woman that gets in her way oh yeah so it's kind of like saying you know it's like, like women being set up to be in competition with with each other for men mm. is quite strong in the film as well you know Mm. Yeah, really worth unpacking, actually. You're right. There is way more in this than what you would initially expect. <laughs> yeah, who is Roger Donaldson? <laughs> like, yeah. This auteur of like, feminist <laughs> discourse. <laughs> no, have you ever seen... So, is this the worst movie with the best cast of all mm. time? I mean, Oscar winner Ben Kingsley, Oscar winner yeah. Forrest Whitaker, Michael Madsen, wow. you know, Alfred Molina, for Christ's sake. I mean, that's that's such a funny joke where... He's trying to get a girl, Alfred Molina, because he's like the nerdy scientist yeah. all the way through. And it's him is the one she ends up having sex with. The, the <laughs> Actually, speaking of the sublime, like who is the actress in it? Natasha Hensdridge. She was like, a, I, I remember seeing her for the first time as a teenager when I watched The Whole Nine Yards, if anyone oh, right. remembers mm. that film. Yeah. Yeah. And like just being like, oh my God, she's so beautiful. Like, I was like obsessed yeah. with her for a year. Like this kind of, she's like mm-hmm. this. She's like an updated like Hitchcock blonde, and in the film she was like very kind of cold and cool, and she wore these like l- like light like she wore like outfits that were like all white or like all lilac, and I don't know. I was just so it's like it was nice to see her again because she was like an early. I don't know. I just had like an obsession with her for no oh. reason particularly apart from she just really struck mm. something in me. Did kind of cold did, beauty. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's so true. And d- did you guys find it interesting, though, as well, that she, she, I mean, obviously she'll have had makeup on for the film, but she was, you know, there was no makeup at all. She was very fresh faced mm. throughout. And that was really jarring, I thought, yeah. you, you know, compared to the way that, the, the you know, t- sort of uh, women are made up, you know, in more contemporary terms. Yeah. Also, Natasha Henstridge is Canadian, guys. Woo, Canadians. They're so sexy. <laughs> the sexiest. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> But they co- that's why they have cold beauty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ice cold. Yeah. <laughs> those are really great picks, Dario. Really interesting. Yeah, yeah well, I ju- I, like I say, I wanted to have a little bit of fun with those. So that's why I chose those ones. They definitely are fun. It's nice to, like, there's just so many. I mean, we could do like three of these series. For sure. So For sure. Right. Uh, who goes next? You should go next, Sarah. Okay, cool. Um, so the first one I'm going to talk about is Sleeping Beauty. Mm. Um, 2011 by Julia Lee and part of the reason why I'm talking about it is because I'm making a zine about it with Kathy Lomax mm-hmm. um, for Zodiac so I kind of wanted to like I just want to float it with some other people like and just see what else thinks about it cool. um, so it's basically 
this very kind of strange singular film, not least because it's her only film. And I love it when directors just make one film and uh, like, and she's never made another one um, about, and it's got Emily Browning who, and again, is, who for me is just so gorgeous. I just think she's like, she's just so amazing looking. Um, and she is a, it's an Australian film. She's a student who has kind of, multiple sort of slightly demeaning jobs like the film opens on her being like a guinea pig in a science experiment which basically involves her having a tube pushed down her throat and then inflated it's called sleeping beauty i think because she's sort of like she's very kind of passive and almost like a like sleeping through life throughout the film and she has other jobs kind of waiting tables and office jobs and she's obviously got some kind of financial difficulty and she gets this job she answers an ad for a job which is waiting tables in lingerie for kind of private parties. And through that, she gets introduced to a job where she takes a sleeping draft. Like it's like a very ritualistic, it's not like a sleeping pill. It's just like a like a draft in this like teacup and then falls asleep. And then like these old men can pay to spend time with her, with her kind of unconscious body. Um, and yeah, it's just like the most strange singular film that I've ever seen. And I don't know if it's totally right to call it an erotic film because it's, there's something quite unerotic about it, but the mise-en-scene and the, the kind of like this beautiful production design, um, by this woman, Annie Beaumont of the, it's just like, it's really kind of, I love the, it's just really fits into my aesthetic. Of yes, it really does. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> it's so you, Sarah. Well, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's very beautiful, very like luxurious on mm -hmm. the screen, um, very tasteful. Like all the decisions in terms of styling are very intentional. I find they really are. They're really they're just it's such incredible styling. Like mm -hmm. I just and everything she wears, she has this kind of fairy tale wardrobe. She yeah. has this beautiful like velvet cape that she wears when she's first going to her, to her first job. And I don't know, it's just so beautiful. And I, a lot of people, obviously, like the response to this film is that it's very disturbing. Hmm. But I don't find it as disturbing as a lot of other people find it. I don't know if I'm just got, if I just have a high tolerance for disturbing cinema. Um, <laughs> but people are just like, oh, it's just so disturbing. It's so disturbing. And I'm like, I don't know, I can't, I would do it. <laughs> like, she gets like these stacks of cash. Uh, the disturbing bit for me is when she starts like spending the money in a way that's like unsustainable. Like that makes me anxious in the film. Yeah. In terms of it being disturbing, like what is it specifically that people are commenting on in that regard? I can I can imagine, but what are what are they saying? I suppose the they they find it disturbing in a way that they find it they find it to be about misogyny, right? About like you know violence towards women and female passivity. Right. But I don't, I don't know. I think I'm, I find that sleep is a very kind of interesting. Yes. Sleepy mm. women are like, they're sort of interesting in a kind of like, there's something, there's some kind of passive resistance there, like a refusal to partake in something that I think is not as straightforward as just passivity. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's more complicated than just, you know, it's about like men wanting to, you know, have sex with dead women or like to reduce women to objects. I think because I think her like decision making and what's kind of happening while she's to her, like, I don't know, but the fact I'm not quite sure. I haven't quite figured it out yet, but I feel like there's something it's not just as straightforward as being about like male violence. I think mm. that her um, that. Yeah, I've always been kind of interested in like 
women like holding something back in films whether it's like not talking or like literally being asleep or you know like these various kind mm. of things that I think are to do with kind of like excusing yourself from like from society or like social expectations in a way I'm not yeah but I haven't can't quite figure it out but I it can't bring myself to just find it horrifying when she's kind yeah. of asleep in the room with these men mm. this I hadn't seen this film before um and it it was one of those movies that when it ended I was like I don't know whether I like that at all you know just on the basis of the you know, we were talking about the pleasures of watching and I was kind of like, there's a lot in there that I found it kind of cold and distant and alienating in, in many ways. And, I, and at the end I was like, sort of, okay, so what was actually that about? What, what are you trying to tell me here? And But at, it was one of those movies that I, I continued to think about, mm. you know, and it was like, what is going on there? And I think my theory on it is that this is a film about a character who is... And, I, I, you know, I haven't got the reason for this, but she seems to be giving up actively all semblance of control of her own life or autonomy completely. And that's her fetish. Mm. So it's almost kind of like an active passivity, you know? And it, what's really interesting, there's moments in the film where she has to make decisions or things are required of her and she fucks them all up. Like, you know, she can't pay her rent on time. And uh, who, that guy that she goes and visits, I think, you know, she's taken it upon herself to look after him for whatever, because we don't know what his kind of situation is. I mean, obviously there's some sort of sexual frissons going on on there. But then right at the beginning, you know, you got, she's, whenever somebody asks her to do something, she just does it. There's kind of like no questioning. And then when some when somebody fires her from the job, she's got, okay, I'm fired. Thank you. I'll, I'll, you know what I mean? There's no engagement at all with any decisions that she takes or any consequences of anything that happens in her life at all. And even, even when she's sort of going through the quote unquote interview <laughs> process for this job, you know, uh, where yeah. she is the sleeping beauty, there's a sort of weird passivity that's not, that, that doesn't have any kind of markers of why decisions are being made. The only decision is not to make a decision. And that's a really weird um, aesthetic is one thing, but also kind of mood for a film to take. Because especially when we're, we live in a, in a culture and in a, in a film culture where exposition and decisions are, are made all the time. And that's what the idea of strength is, you know, is making decisions. So it's really weird to see somebody who clearly is gaining yeah. strength from not making any decisions. Um, and that, uh, and again, I haven't, like Sarah, I haven't sort of figured out whether there is a sort of a key point to be drawn from that. But that, that, that's what I, I mean, was thinking about anyway. Off the back of what you said, Dario, and also like connecting to what Sarah said before, to me, how I read this version of the fairy tale is that it's exactly like the, the topographical organization of the mind. So for example, like when, when you're awake, uh, you can assume that you're governed by conscious thought, right? Mm -hmm. So that's your ego. And that's like your decision-making power, your organization skills, like your cognitive skills, frontal cortex stuff, right? What we're aware of. But according to, you know, Freudian theory, that is not the whole story. Like that is just the tip of the iceberg, actually. Like the conscious element of the mind is literally just 
a very small portion of our psyche. And it's not even the, the bit of it that is even governing us fully. The unconscious mind is the most powerful and it's unknowable, which is frustrating that that's what governs us. So if we take that to be true, then in a way, you know, this movie Sleeping Beauty is like it's eroticizing the unconscious. So when she sleeps, she's accessing something that none of us can know about as viewers. Right. She's in her own kind of she's sort of like turning to her unconscious more than anything else. And this decision on her part is what gets eroticized. The people who end up spending time with her while she's asleep, that's what they're motivated by. Her impulse to turn to her unconscious. And in a way that's getting elevated as something like more powerful than the conscious mind where you can be like active and take act, you know, decisions and you are aware. Oh my God, both of you have just blown my mind. I love you guys so much. I've been looking at this film a little bit too closely and you just like, I've just, thank you so much. It's really, really clicking into a lot of things that I've like written down and I haven't been able to kind of like draw together. Mm. So yeah, fantastic, fantastic. You're both so right about this film. Ah, it's so she's, good. she's so well cast as well because she's like, it's almost, and she's shot, especially when she's in the bed, that bedroom against that dark wool paneling. It makes her skin even, and her texture yeah. makes her seem even more like porcelain. It's like, it's, if there's an, act, an actress who should be in a kind of Renaissance painting from the 1500s, yeah. it's her, you know? But it's really interesting how you said, Sarah, before, that it's not erotic. It's got all the, it's all, got all the, um, all the symbols of eroticism, all the signs of eroticism, but they're all placed in a context where that it's too mannered, it's too contrived. Mm. And, you know, even her even her as a presence, you know, her as a visual image, it, you know, it's it, it doesn't sort of... You, you, I, I don't think you kind of think about sex in that, that way. It's just an aesthetic. It's just a, a vision, you know, where, which is very different to, say, Penelope Cruz or, or Beatrice mm. Dahl, for example, yeah. in, in Betty Blue, which mm-hmm. I know... Uh, um, <laughs> talk about. well thanks guys for doing my homework for me um, <laughs> I appreciate it um, so my next one is um, The Dreamers mm. 2003 Bernardo Bertolucci R.I.P. R.I.P. Um, and I mean it's about a young student a young American student played by Michael Pitt studying in Paris during the 68 student riots um, kind of centered around the Cinémathèque Française um, and he's this huge cinephile and he kind of joins this group. Well, he sort of joins this group of cinephiles, but is very much kind of on the outside of this group of, so he's like the watcher in this group of watchers. And he notices this brother and sister or like well, who he thinks are a couple at first who are sit very, very close to the screen. They're very beautiful. And one day he manages to kind of like, he talks to, speaks to them, speaks to the sister and then gets introduced to the brother. And these two French siblings kind of take him in um, their parents go away and leave, like in lots of in lots of like. So it's kind of got this like cement garden kind of like idea of just like parents who sort of mysteriously leave and leave their children unsupervised. And he moves into this house with them and kind of like carries on like a sort of menage a trois, like strange, like cinematic, cinephile romance with them. Um, and I don't know, talk about like fetishizing cinema. It's oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Like just, it's just so emotional for me watching this film. Like it just, wow. it's just a film about being like the erotic. It's just a film about the eroticism of film. 
And yeah. I, just, I think it's just so brilliant. And I actually don't know why this film isn't on more greatest film lists. I agree. Oh, thank you, Mary. <laughs> no, it's Bertolucci, not politically correct. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> that's crazy, though. Like, you know, that's like, you can't punish the film for Bertolucci, you know? Like, it's just such a brilliant <laughs> love letter to cinema. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's amazing. And it also has some like kind of like I think the scene where he takes Eva Green's virginity on the kitchen floor while Louis Garrel like makes fried eggs is just like, it's just so sexy. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know. What do you guys think of the film? Big fan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so romantic about cinema. The whole storyline about, you know, the kind of incestuous elements of you know in in the relationship that's represented on the in the film because there's just hold up in this apartment right for mm-hmm. a very long time and I just read it I always read this movie as kind of like trying to warm itself into the brain of like cinemaniacs <laughs> that we're 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 those people like we, we're just happy to just like you know we're cinema punters we want to be inside a cinema space and just hold up in there and we get to know people in that community and it's, it forms a little bit of a bubble and we're all so driven by it. We're so passionate about it and animates us. It's, it is an erotic force. It's a moving force. And maybe it can be viewed by normies that we're just like incestuous freaks inside our bubble. Oh my God. Do you think the dream yeah. is what people think film Twitter is? <laughs> <laughs> It's it's far cooler than film. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Agreed. <laughs> oh, that's so beautiful. You're totally right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. And and then we're happy in that world. Like, we don't want to be out there. We don't want to touch any grass. Yeah, we don't no, want to be just... outside in the light. <laughs> no way. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> this mean... is so true. I mean, if you see this at the right at the right time, you you could you could very easily kind of think that's my kind of romantic ideal of the life mm. I want to have as a, as a cinephile. You know, yeah. obviously it's overly romanticized and idealized and all of that, all that kind of stuff. But also we're all, we're all kind of Michael Pitt in this movie, aren't we? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, we're talking about taboo, the sort of, the, the, the unbelievable sexiness of Eva Green and Louis Garrel. Oh, I know. It's just ridiculous. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of on a par, I think with, um, Maggie Chung and uh, um, yeah, um, and oh god, the uh, uh, Tony, Tony, Le- Tony Leung, Leung, yeah, in you know what I mean. It's like that they're just unbelievable to the point of being yeah scary, and mm. and then the, the the fact that there's this incestuousness going on at the same time because I think that that's the thing. It's like how Michael Pitt is is trying to cross these taboos in order to, to have this kind of experience where it's you know, it's sexuality, it's movies, but it's also, you know, there's a little bit sort of the the, the political context at, at the same time and the notion of being liberal, being a libertine, all these kinds of kinds of things. And I mean, it, it's interesting because this was made in, what, what when was this, about 2000 and early 2000s? 2003. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's interesting that, the, that I think that this movie is, is something that you could, I understand why it gets criticized as being a sort of old man's love letter to the 1960s and really fetishizing sort of, you know, younger actors and, you know, eroticizing them in ways that has been criticized. But, you know, for cinephiles, it's kind of like, 
that's what you want. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I'm sorry. It's but true. you know, it's that's why it's called the dreamers. We're all dreaming of it. Yeah. Exactly. That's yes. so true. That's so true. Well, I mean, sad. and speaking of like sexy spaces, this is just another one. I think I've just I've just got like a trilogy of like interiors, <laughs> like erotic interiors mm. in my films. Yeah. But apparently you know, I think Maison Sen is quite important to my sense of eroticism. But like the the production design and the dreamers and like the, the bit where they make what my friend what my American friend calls the cosmic fuck tent in the living room. <laughs> like, That's hilarious. It's just like the sexiest space for me. Like if I, when yeah. I have a house of my own, I'm just going to have a room that's got like a, te- a little den like that. Yeah. And that's where I'll have sex. <laughs> so. And it does, it does for bananas what um, Call Me By Your Name does for peaches, you know. That's so true. That is so true. Oh my true. God. Oh my God. That's a good like little Instagram account of um, <laughs> erotic, like um, eroticized foods. Yeah. Um, the, the 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 fruit star of films. Yeah, that one's banana. That is actually genius. What he does to that banana, it's like, <laughs> really clever. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. And all of the like, I mean, I don't think Louis Garrel will ever really be able to move on from this film because he is like the ideal, isn't he? All three of them, oh, yeah, are just yeah. like are totally sublime and amazing. And I love like their the the twins like naked outfits. Like yeah. she's got that like dress that's just. Um, we actually screened this uh, as we did a zodiac screening of this, mm-hmm. and my right. friend Jordan, um, who I used to do it with, has two dresses that are like the same, like sort of bias cut chiffon shape of um, Eva Green's dress that she wears with nothing underneath. And we both wore one. Jordan's was like I think pink, and mine was green. Mm-hmm. And so we both wore them for the screening, and I just, they were just beautiful. And then I, I love it when Louis Garrel's got that like velvet smoking jacket and no pants. <laughs> it's just amazing. Yeah, yeah, beautiful film. But um, you can, I mean, it's one of those, isn't it? That you can just, if if you are a cinephile, it, it just it cuts through all of your defenses. Yeah. And if you want to, and anybody who loves movies and says, "Well, this is just, you know, I don't like this and I don't like that," and. I, I, they're really, they're not a cinephile. That's so true. And The Dreamers is a good little test. Of, yeah, it is. Of a cinephile or like a, just, a, you know, our kind of people. Yeah, because <laughs> he's riffing on so many other films. It's a pastiche or a, or a, a homage. So therefore, if you don't like, you know, you, what, what essentially is saying, oh, I, I, you know, I don't like the way that this has been sort of co-opted in that way. But really, if we're being honest, we like films that co-opt the kind of things that we like. Yeah. Because we want to see it again and re rethought through or whatever, or at least even just sort of represented to us. It's true. It's just like, it's no matter how kind of cynical you are, like it's just a film about being a fan, yeah. which is so, mm. like, which is so lovely and freeing. So, yeah. Oh. It's just so wonderful. It's erotic in all sorts of ways. It really is. Yeah. Um, I feel like I could watch this. I could like screen this film every year or something. Like the actual, actually the, the month that we screened it, Bertolucci died and we didn't like, we didn't, he, he, he died after we announced it. So we didn't know he was going to die. Um, and I remember that kind of caused a little bit of like negative twi- tweeting to go on about our like planned screening. Right. Um, but I'm really glad that we did it anyway because it's just yeah, it's just so beautiful, and yeah, totally worth it. I would screen it again. I don't. I don't care. <laughs> you guys, you guys have seen the Conformist, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's just that's his masterpiece to me. I get, mm. Yeah, that should be on the top hundred list. Yeah, it's true. Maybe um in ten years they'll have um, forgiven him. Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Um, and then finally, um. 
this was we did a, a episode called soft core which i was really glad that we did and when we were planning it i was a little bit nervous that we wouldn't have enough to kind of talk about um but we did paprika and emmanuel but this would have been my this would, was my third choice for that episode um immoral mm. tales um damn it i looked up how to say this and i did a little pronunciation thing and now i've forgotten um <laughs> but, but valerian barochik Burrage, I don't know how yeah, to, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's for it's just it's just pure softcore porn, but in these like beautiful historical settings. So it's like softcore <laughs> softcore porn for like history geeks, basically. Um, it's medieval surrealist folk porn. It is, it one hundred percent is. So in the first in the first sequence, um a boy takes his cousin to the beach and like basically maroons her in a bit of a beach with the tides coming in and gets her to give him a blowjob. And in the next one, a girl like sort of intermingles her like dedication to Christ with her like burgeoning sexual desires and masturbates with some cucumbers. <laughs> and <laughs> in the third one, um, Elizabeth Bathory, played by Paloma Picasso, um, is um, yeah, is Elizabeth Bathory is a who's a countess who like murders young girls to bathe in their blood. And then the final one, which is my personal favorite, is a little vignette of Lucretia Borgia having sex with her um, with her important a holy family. <laughs> so, um, and I just think it's super sexy and be and beautiful at the same time. It is my preferred kind of porn. <laughs> did you did you guys not immediately notice the looky likey in this? The looky likey. The first actress looks like Mia Goth, who we know looks like oh, you, Sarah. Yeah. Do you think so? I don't see that at all. That's so funny. First, yeah, I, <laughs> it's I, funny. I, I hadn't noticed it when I watched it, but now that you mention it, Dario, you're right. Oh no, my sexuality is purely narcissistic. <laughs> 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 oh my god that well that's nice now i can't now i can't think of anything to say because i'm just super flattered <laughs> i don't really know what to say about this about this film, to be honest with you i just found it really you know i mean it it is what it is it's a sort of one of those kind of 1970s in the um in that that i don't know sort of, sort of ilk of trying to test the boundaries of what could be done in between art house and mainstream movie making, I think in Europe, mm. um, it's incredibly dated. I found it, and, and I was just kind of laughing a, a lot of the the <laughs> way through. I mean, you know, I mean, I, th I quite enjoyed the uh, the third story. I thought that was the most interesting one out, out of them all. Yeah, and then the rest of it is just you know you you're you know you can't really sort of project onto it anything related to meaning you know, from a contemporary perspective or anything or anything like that. So it's just a case of, you know, how much you enjoy the sort of the sensuality or the aesthetics of what, what's going on and whether the symbolism really means anything to you. But um, yeah, that's all I've got to say really <laughs> on that one. Dario. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, I found it very, yeah, I kind of agree in a sense that it's difficult to put into words how I related to it just because purely because I found it like phantasmagorical, mm -hmm. you know, like very dreamlike, unreal, but I do like that kind of thing. You know, I feel like I need to give it another watch because I've never seen this before. 
Yeah, I think uh, when I was living in Paris, they did a season of his at the Pompidou Centre because they've got like a cinema there. And um, that's so they were like really kind of celebrating his work. I just think it's so beautiful. Oh, it is. It's it's similar to like my love of Tinto Brass is my love of his films. They're just so, so incredibly gorgeous. And like if I was to make a film, that's how I would want it to look. Like it's very, you know, it's like it's really kind of up there with, um, well, with the other two films we talked about. Really, um, mm-hmm. I went to see The Beast, which is another, which is like a feature length film um, about, um, and it's kind of it's about like a woman who's in, like coming to this country house to marry this man who is kind of like a werewolf type, uh, has some kind of mm-hmm. werewolf type disease, like illness. So like, and then mm-hmm. it cut, but then it cuts to this like um, sort of historical. It keeps cutting to these like historical vignettes of this woman being pursued by a, like a, a terrifying sex beast in the in the um <laughs> in the woods, and um, this sex beast has like an, this enormous penis that just has an unlimited supply of semen just like bubbling out of it all the time. And <laughs> I had to leave the cinema because I thought I was going to be sick. <laughs> like it was just so much. It was so much semen that I just kept gagging. <laughs> like I was like. Well, I had to leave because I, I couldn't stand it. It was so visceral that like, I just couldn't, like, I couldn't handle it. Like, I, like it, it basically it got the better of my gag reflex without actually being a physical <laughs> thing. I was just like, I have to leave. Mm. That's never happened to me before. People say that about like horror movies and stuff. Like, I had to leave during a softcore porn because it was too, dis- <laughs> it was too, there was too much semen like coming out of it. So yeah, that's my um, amusing Borovich story. <laughs> bodily fluids. Bodily fluids. It was too many bodily fluids. I couldn't have, like I'm like the bodily fluids queen. <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't handle it. I know it's your favorite bodily fluid. Well, you know, <laughs> maybe this is the film for me. Yeah. Oh, Dario, what's your favorite bodily fluid? <laughs> well, it's not something I've really thought about before. Uh, before I came on, what's my favorite bodily fluid? That's an interesting one. Um. Tears. This is Sarah's wheelhouse. Yeah. I'm not a crier. So when it happens, it's like, oh, that's interesting. Interesting. Fascinating. Oh. Love love to learn new things. <laughs> Dario, do you know that Sarah runs an Instagram account on tears? Oh no, I didn't know that. I'll send you the handle. I actually oh, haven't yeah, um have I've I kind of it's a it's a uh whatever you call it, an abandoned Instagram account. I still actually collect the pictures. But mm. I just don't post, and I will get back to it at some point. But it, I had it for like four years. It's called Spilt Milk. So yeah, anyway. <laughs> that's an, yeah, that's a good handle. Yeah. Sure. I don't know. I just I always find it fascinating in movies where you get that you know, when really good actors can kind of cry on cue, and and mm. the director captures them. The best one for me is in The Elephant Man, where. Uh, Anthony Hopkins sees oh, sees him for yeah. the first time, and it just there's that slow zoom, and as soon as the zoom pauses, this t- one tear runs down his face. It's like that's fucking acting. <laughs> <laughs> that's cinema. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, Mary, let's move on. Well, I mean, from the sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs> <let's>, <laughs> Let's talk about, well, let's just get stri- striptease out of the way. Um, <laughs> because. <laughs> because well, go I on ch- then, you first. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was crass. I couldn't resist it. Though. No, it's perfectly welcome here. 
So Strip Tease is a 1996 film. It stars Demi Moore. It actually has a pretty good cast. Totally. There's some interesting characters in this movie. And it basically just all like revolves around a single mother who's recently divorced. She's lost her official, like respectable FBI job because of her badly behaved husband. And so she's like having to rely on stripping to make a living. And he also has one full custody of their daughter. And but and, and the daughter is actually the mean Moore's daughter, isn't it? Oh, I didn't know that. That's so cute. Yeah, I can't remember which kid it is, but she has three daughters and and the kid in the movie is one of her daughters. So she's forced to work, you know, as a stripper in this club. And there's a lot of scheming going on. I'm not going to get into the (laughs) completely absurd plot line of what goes on in this movie, but there is a politician, uh, a congressman played by Burt Reynolds. Now, the thing is, I remember I remember when, when this movie was released and it, it was sort of seen as a bad move on Demi Moore's part. She was criticized for it. Hmm. I think her career was a bit damaged by this movie. But weirdly enough, Burt Reynolds, he was really beloved in this movie. Like there was so much critical praise for him. Interesting. I don't know. I don't even know if I'm imagining this, but I think he might have even been nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> wow. For this movie. I mean, I'm, I'm putting that out there. I didn't fact check this. I should have done. But I remember there being just so much love for Burt Reynolds that he killed it. And admittedly, I thought he was actually pretty good for what it is, for what it is. <laughs> I, th- I think it's I, I think it's actually the um, Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Oh, is um, that what he got nominated for? Yeah, because he plays a, basically the same character. Oh. I mean, it's not a congressman, but he's playing kind of like, a you know, an older guy who's kind of structurally in charge of this women's career. And it's in the porn industry. God, what's oh, that? Oh, yeah. What's Boogie Nights. Called? Boogie Nights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's the one he won or he was nominated for the Oscar for, but it's a very similar okay, role. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, you're, of course. I doubt <laughs> that the, the striptease was anywhere near the Oscars. Oh, it would have been so good, though. If it definitely, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will just say, you know, 100%, like, I'm just going to admit it, it is not a good movie. <laughs> This movie is really bad. The acting is terrible. The The plot is just bonkers. There's some very cringe dialogue in it. And even with good actors, you know, like I, I like Demi Moore. I think she's a great actress. And Armand Asante is usually fabulous. Um, so, so many people in this movie could have chosen to do a better movie. But um, so it's just obviously not up to scratch. But the reason I chose it is mainly because I'm kind of going by specific scenes that I found were standouts for me that I would have liked to have included in, in, in our regular series. There just would have been no place for them because it's just so random. Mm -hmm. But there's a couple of scenes in in striptease that really stand out for me. One is throughout the film, we see her her character, the single mom who's like, you know, shit out of luck. And she's having to work as a stripper. And we, we can see her like carrying the moral burden of being a stripper. And she's sort of like, you know, rationalizing it, intellectualizing it. Well, she says that she doesn't want to be doing this. Mm. When she goes up on the stage, she's got all of these like very intricate choreographies Mm. and dances, like very complicated dances 
they, they, she's very athletic for the movie like her body is banging you know like she looks incredible I know it's like very not it's not really believable that she was like an FBI agent in a former life like yes yeah. like it's just like she's yeah. like they're all like a little bit like overweight because they sit in cars and eat donuts and stuff <laughs> like like no way would she have like he- like waist length hair and like all of that. no way yeah also if she were an fbi agent that is the real crime keeping that body yeah. <laughs> like damn girl like she really kills it she looks amazing but the funny thing to me is that there's all these like there's all this hesitance and like shyness and coyness like in the dressing room and then when she gets on the stage she's come up with these crazy amazing moves like she's killing it and it just seems so implausible to me, you know, like on surely on some level, she loves this shit and she's good at it, you know? She's so good. Like, I really love those scenes because she's like, she has like a, like, a, like characters yeah. and like almost like she's like, she's like a, she's an artist and it really reminds totally. me of like a lot of the films that we talked about. You know, we've got like um, Catherine Turmel, who's a writer and yeah. we've got like the dancers in Showgirls who are like, you know, at the top of their game, they're artists. And it's just like another film about these like brilliant female artists. And they're like, they're like, she, she just has like, and they're like sexual creativity and yeah. erotic creativity. Like I love her. her, her, they're so cool. Like they really, I think they really probably got, gave a lot of like young women completely the wrong idea of what being a stripper was. Like, they, yeah. you know, you, oh, I can design this whole production like with costumes and like <laughs> all of this stuff. <laughs> I can be a storyteller. Yeah, <laughs> I can be a storyteller. I can be an auteur of the stage. <laughs> Yeah, like I, I really love that she gets into it, you know. She's got that Scorpio energy for sure. I mean, Demi Moore is a Scorpio is in she? real life. I didn't yes. know that. That's cool. Yeah, and it totally like radiates off of her. And even like the private dances for Burt Reynolds are hot, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found especially when she's rehearsing like at home in like the towel and underwear, I, I love that the most. Like I. I think it's so cool. I love anything about women in their bedrooms, like what they get up to in their bedrooms Mm. and like dancing and singing in front of the mirror, like lip syncing to Annie Lennox, whatever. Um, I mean, she's an Annie Lennox, like super fan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I like, I like all of the dancing scenes. I just wish there were more of them to be honest, because the plot is just whack. It's just stupid. Yeah. It's very farcical. (laughs) It's very farcical. But also, there is another one who stands out, and that is the lady with the massive snake. Um, <laughs> who I, th- I mean, I think maybe <laughs> there may have even been some, like, a crime, like a bestiality crime committed in this movie. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's true. Like, it's a little... They remind me... The strippers remind me of, like, um, the brothels in Tinto Brass. Of just yeah. like what it would be like if like sexual spaces really were like these like these sort of beautiful places of like uh, these explosions of female creativity because like they would be like hell of a lot more perverted and like a lot more beautiful as well exactly and also um it's one of the same strippers from Showgirls yeah, yes yeah. yeah 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 what did you what did you guys think of it I mean I know you said Sarah a few things already but I'm curious to know yeah yeah no I mean I like. I, I like the same things that you did. Like I barely, and I did, I, I, you know, I did have to skim watch, but I'd like, I was totally lost with the plot. I was just like, who? who? <laughs> like, and also just, I thought the tone was really weird because it actually this really scary scenario of like, 
her like child is like with this completely unsuitable father and she doesn't have any rights but then it's also like a comedy <laughs> like it's like this is really serious guys like it's it's very yeah. upsetting and serious um but no i love i love the same things i thought that the the her dances were so creative and amazing doesn't she mm. get like told off for being too like much of a sad girl as well yeah at some point i really liked that <laughs> um, it really reminded me of this like book that I read called Future Sex, where um, mm. which um, is basically kind of all these different chapters. It was written a while ago now, so it kind of has all these different chapters in different sort of like it has. The, actually, actually, she goes to um, one taste, the orgasm cult, oh, um, yeah. and she goes to one of those. And there's another one where she's talking about um, like cam girls, and she she talks about one of these girls that's like the star of the cam girl world, and basically all she does is like sit in like an American apparel leotard, like looking sad, mm. and guys like are like all just like vi- like just just like just crowding on into her room to like give her like David Foster Wallace rec- book recommendations, and to like all just like <laughs> they were just like competing with each other to like cheer up this sad girl, and I was just like. And so when he's like, stop being so sad on like stage, it's just like, no, you don't know what works. Like guys love this shit. Like just like the sadder, the better. Like, I don't know. I thought it was great. I was, I'm really glad to, I hadn't seen it before and it was really nice to be introduced to that film. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Dario? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I've, I've definitely seen this before and, you know, watching it again, it's a pity it is, it is kind of shit. Yeah. But it, well, I mean, what's interesting to me is kind of Demi Moore in the, in the, kind of pantheon of erotic thrillers of the of the 90s because mm. she was in indecent proposal yeah. which is an erotic film to a certain degree but it then is. disclosure as well with which which was definitely a sort of uh post um, basic instinct film mm-hmm. and then she's in in this movie as well and i think there was definitely a I think there was definitely a move. It seems to me there's a move on her part where she's trying to one-up show, Showgirls a little mm. bit because Showgirls was 1996. But having said that, it's probably being made, you know, at a, a, a similar time. So it's not as if it's a reaction to that. Mm. But I think there was a time when Demi Moore, I'm like thinking back where she would have, she probably would have branded herself as the, se- you know, the sexiest, her and, her and, um, um, Sharon Stone. God, Sharon Stone were, were the two that were the, you know, the the, the sexiest Hollywood stars of the t- of the time. Mm. And I think that this was sort of an attempt to, you know, kind of nail, you know, to, yeah. to really sort of, you know, produce that in a film that says that that demonstrates it, you know, in a very obvious way. And I think that it's it's another example of, of it's interesting thinking about that in the shadow of say something like Magic Mike. And the way that that was received, obviously kind of in a similar similar subject area, but the way that that, that film and um, Channing Tatum, yeah, you know, is was almost kind of. It, I mean, there's a definite sexism going on here because he was actually praised for you know here is this actor who is absolutely brilliant at stripping, basically, yeah. you know, and he considered <laughs> stripping was a sort of art form, and mm. he embodied as an actor a, you know he could just literally do it and they all shot it in the one shot so it wasn't a you know a body double and somebody else coming in he had the body and he had the moves and he could do it and that was lauded and it's interesting how you know with striptease and demi moore i don't think it was kind of considered in the in that same way so there's a definite sort of interesting weird reversal sexism going on going on there um 100%. but yeah i'm always yeah i'm always interested in 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 films where 
you know, lead actors actually take up a skill and demonstrate how great they are at it and therefore can play that role in the movie themselves. And I think mm. Demi Moore is sort of under, I think Demi Moore generally slight is, is underrated as a, as a movie star and a persona. Yeah, yeah. she is. She's kind of disappeared, hasn't she? Like, apart from... Yeah, I think so. Being, um, uh, what's his name? Mila Kunis's husband. Oh, Ashton Kutcher. Ashton yeah, Kutcher. Yeah. Kutcher. She was in Margin Call in a very small role. She's been in small stuff, hasn't she, mm. I think? Yeah, she was really good in Margin Call, but that's been that's been a while now, hasn't it? It's yeah, been maybe like 10 ago. years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago. Yeah. I can't think of anything particularly. I haven't seen... I know she was in The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, but oh, I haven't yeah. seen that. So, no, I yeah. haven't seen that. I want to see a Demi Moore renaissance. Yeah, and I want to see a Sharon Stone renaissance. Same. <laughs> um, okay, so my second film that I chose was Betty Blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a 1986 film, and it stars the beautiful Beatrice Dahl and Jean-Hugues Anglade. And um, so it's about like a 30-something aspiring writer, and early on in the film, we see him like making a living as a handyman on like beach houses in a seaside resort in France. And he meets like this beautiful young girl, 19 year old Betty. And she's quite like a volatile character, quite impulsive. And they begin a passionate um, affair. It's a very kind of interesting kind of setup because he's very dissatisfied doing the work that he's doing, but he also apparently is like writing his first novel Mm -hmm. on the side and Betty reads it and thinks oh my god like you're so talented you're so gifted this is what you should be doing (laughs) and he sort of gets into rows with his boss in the aftermath of this she basically like convinces him to leave and doesn't she like burn down the shack yeah she fucking yeah, does she like because like yeah because the landlord wants him to paint all of the houses and exactly. yeah she burns everything down she's just Damn. amazing i love her yeah. so much what a force yeah like she is she's incredible she's a force of nature she's amazing so they end up going to paris where betty's friend lives and Betty basically takes it upon herself to like type out all of this guy's novel and starts like submitting it to various publishers. Yeah, like essentially she's like forcing the issue in a way. Like she's trying to like get him to commit. Um, well, she just wants his book published. She's like not even, you know, she she's so single-minded about that. She's very one-track minded. And so like without going too much further into the plot and stuff, it's just... I mean, it's it's very easy to imagine this love affair that's very passionate, very like, it's very hot. Like they obviously have a lot of chemistry on the screen. It would be easy to like read this as purely allegorical in the sense that, you know, if we're, if we're thinking about an artist's journey. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, Sarah, you and I have talked about like having a whole series on like the process of artists, you know? Exactly, yeah. This would be really good one to include for that I think Mm. um in the sense that you know what Betty represents as being this beautiful girl super hot like DTF everything she you know it could be actually read as this fire inside the artist that's like compelling him to write and compelling him to create and produce and it's like 
just one track minded like that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't fall for the the excuses and the self doubt of of the logical mind, you know, it 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 is it just wants to burn and it's bright. Yeah. So it's sort of like representing this eroticism as something in the interior of the artist that compels him and pushes him forward in his artistic journey, even if he can come up with a million excuses why he shouldn't do that. Yeah, that's um, definitely like that's definitely how I read it. Yeah, like, and like also just and and not only like compels you and pushes you, but kind of like like makes you embarrass yourself or like embarrasses yeah. <laughs> you or like and like gets you into trouble, like gets you fired from your job, like right. or like gets you to quit your job. So it's like also like the risk and the terror of like burns down your job, burns down your job, and it's like it reminds <laughs> me of um, the artist way. With, yeah. <laughs> which is like you know and, and it's like all of the reasons why I shouldn't be like creative and it's just kind of like all of those reasons it's like the fear of it there's like a bit where it says like if I become an artist I might drink drug sex myself to death <laughs> that's like one of the reasons so yeah sorry but yeah, I just, I'm just yeah, no. like totally agreeing with you there like not just the the drive of creating but also just like the te- the risks of creating that you yeah like, it's like you know she keeps like sending his stuff out and like making people like pay attention to him and yeah 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 like I've I've heard some people say that this movie is like you know sexist because she's like doing labor for him and like you know she's sort of enslaved in that power dynamic but I disagree like she wants to do that you know this is her agency it's her autonomy but it's like it, it would be even more interesting to read it as she's an aspect of his interior life that it's it's that crazy like dreamery side of himself that is totally immune to even the laws of physics yes. you know? like it's, it just needs to create like it's desperately trying to create and sometimes that gets misunderstood in our world and it gets read as like mental illness hence why she is sort of coded as being maybe I don't know borderline or something mm. Um, so I choose to read it in a positive way. But anyway, aside from all of that, there's another scene I need to talk to you guys about, which is, um, I think this is the single hottest moment in the movie. I sent you the link. I yeah, don't know if you got it. I, I watched it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally random. Basically, this writer guy, he has this like strange encounter with a woman who's breastfeeding a baby. <laughs> yeah. And out of nowhere, she's just like, like gets out her other breast and like forces him to touch it. (laughs) And to me, like watching this movie, it wasn't even like Betty and Zorg's sex scenes that like got me like, you know, (laughs) like flustered. It was this scene. I was like, it's just so taboo and unexpected to me. It's the element of surprise. It's a, you know, it's, because also this lady is gorgeous. Mm. Um, this actress who um, Zorg has the an encounter with, she's so hot. She's so unbelievably sexy. And that scenario just completely blew my mind because I was not expecting that. It is just this strange lightning bolt of sexuality in an otherwise unremarkable moment in the movie. <laughs> it is. And there's a couple of scenes like this in this movie, mm-hmm. I think, where like women just like kind of throw themselves at him. 
like isn't there a scene there's a scene like where some woman like like kind of tries to like force him to go down on her yeah like as well I remember finding that very disturbing as a teenager because it was just like the, <laughs> it was like the opposite of like what I had previously been shown on screen about women and I was yeah. like oh this makes me uncomfortable and I remember like my friend Freya being like no I love it so <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah that it's like it's this weird like what is it about that character where like these women just keep like just like offering them him like him yeah. their body like I don't understand like, I, I find that really interesting like what does it mean what is it about well them? I mean I with the breastfeeding woman all I'm gonna interpret is that she's recently had a baby and her body is producing nourishment for the baby mm. so she's created something and like attracts like he's a writer he's in the process of you know that's so true oh my giving, god giving birth to his novel and this is mirrored back to him with this super hot milf <laughs> who <laughs> that's why milfs are a thing yes because they're artists like because they created something oh they my just God. created something just you know something but then that's he's my like, reading but then he, but he doesn't recognize her back he's like oh my god goldfish <laughs> like, because he's neurotic yeah that's true he's always trying to resist this erotic impulse to create he's like to- always trying to rationalize it that's why oh brilliant i love it well, thank you well, keep it under control as well yeah. yeah, you know that's yeah. the thing with her. As I mean, uh, I've got. I, I do beg to differ. I didn't find that scene erotic at all. And really? Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just the idea of somebody breastfeeding and then you're trying to fondle the other boob. No, sorry, that doesn't do it for me. <laughs> Maybe I, mean, I don't know whether I'm atypical of other men, but I would I would suggest that's uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it's, it's incredibly, an, an incredibly erotic movie, especially because it's like that first scene, it's just like, here you go, we're not messing around here. It, wasn't this film one of those where they sort of discussed whether they were actually having sex or not? Mm-hmm. And mm. it sort of ties into this question, doesn't it, about what's pornography and what's erotic? And I think it's an, it's an interesting, I mean, I know you've touched upon this in the series as a whole, as you've gone through. Mm-hmm. Um but I think it's still a, a kind of interesting and open question because obviously there is a sort of there's there's lots of crossover there. But that that sense of erotic being something that is symbolic that that moves beyond the direct image of the sex act itself, which stands for itself, whereas erotica is kind of symbolically or psychologically infused with a with a deeper meaning. And you know, when we're talking about film itself, really the most basic distinction is. If they're actually having sex, then it's porn. <laughs> Whereas mm. if they're not, it's erotic. But again, you know, you know, you can you can challenge all of these uh, all of these definitions. Um, but I, I think for, for for me, you know, especially from a sort of male gaze perspective, like her her sort of abandonment, you know, the fact that she she she's she's kind of has no she she has no sort of taboos for herself. You know, she's mm-hmm. completely into the sex. She wants, you know, she, like you were saying, and it's, it's interesting how even in, in the, you know, very erotic films, there is still that sense that, that women have a, the female characters, let's say, not women in general, but they have something that has to be conquered or something that has to be, um, for them, for any male character that has to be, um, addressed or or broken down let's say in order for the consummation to take place in many sexual situations in in movies which is really interesting but she doesn't have any of that 
and that's why it has that there's so much life in the film yeah i think and it ties in with the way that it's shot there's so much color and the texture of it is just amazing yeah and 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 i i do agree totally with your your reading of the idea that, that she's a sort of she's awakening all the things that he's trying to keep repressed because his books are all in that big box and it's kind of like she discovers them before she burns the house down. I say, now all you've got left is your, you can mm. leave all this shit behind, all this <laughs> handyman bullshit that nobody's interested in. We've just got, you've just got me, which is, you know, this sort of erotic drive of creativity. Exactly. And your books. And, but the problem is it's can't, you know, he can't control that, he do, you know, and he he's too scared of all of that. As as I think, you know, we all are in yeah. terms of kind of the idea of, of creativity. And, you know, if I had any... It, 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 if I sort of followed my my idea of my dream to, you know, quit my job and write a novel or make a film or whatever it might be, it's just, that's just too scary in, you know, mm. in, in this day and age for sure. But I, I guess that's through the ages too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And it's like, what, you know, what is represented and symbolized in Betty Blue, you know, her character is just like all those hours she spends typing his manuscript and writing the book for him, you know, like typing it out she's in a flow state. Mm. Like she doesn't care about, as you, as you rightly said, Sarah, like the risks, she doesn't care that, you know, that he's going to get rejected. Like she's just in a flow state. And that is a superpower onto itself, reaching that place of just total abandonment into the process. And it just is a shame that in the normal world of every day, you know, and responsibilities and things that need to get done and bills to be paid, et cetera, that that drive and that flow state gets characterized as crazy and delusional. Yeah. <laughs> and it has to, and you, you have to smother it. <laughs> like, yeah, you have to smother does it. That, does that mean like his neurosis kind of wins in the end? Like it's quite... You know, yeah, I think so. Like, I, uh, that film makes my boyfriend really angry because, like, he was like, because he says that, you know, when he was younger, he used to go on dates with girls and they say, I love that film, Betty Blue, it's so romantic. So he watched it and he was like, it's about a guy who smiles his girlfriend. Like, what do women want? Like, yeah. Right. Really, but yeah, no, that read, the reading of it as like her being like the creative facet of him is like, you know, kind of takes, you know, makes that easier to swallow. The fact that. Mm. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. Then, then that women want necrophile boyfriends. Yeah. Well, they. Well, you know, if Sleeping Beauty is to be believed. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there we are. I would love to like share the clip of the, you know, the breastfeeding encounter. Oh, you can on Twitter. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> I'm gonna share it there. I mean, I looked for this clip everywhere online, and the only place I found it was on a porn site. So. Like I'm gonna have to find some workaround to get it on <laughs> to get it on Twitter. Sometimes like the porn sites are really helpful with like cinephile searches. They <laughs> really are. Okay. They really are. They've got they, they, they don't have a canon to worry about. Like they just <laughs> leave it on like the most beautiful films on those sites. It's great. Oh, it makes me feel so much less guilty about having it as my homepage. Yeah, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a sod when you want to quote it for an academic textbook though. You, know, you just can't go with that. <laughs> for my final film, I chose Belle de Jour. This, of course, is a 1967 French drama film directed by Louis Bunuel, starring Catherine Deneuve. And it's basically about a young woman who secretly spends her midweek afternoons as a sex worker 
ostensibly, while her physician husband is at work. Apparently, it's actually Buñuel's most or one of his most successful and famous mm. films. Um, so this character is Severine. She is unable to share physical intimacy with her husband, despite their love for each other. And her sexual life as a result is restricted to elaborate fantasies involving domination, sadomasochism, and bondage. So um, she learns that her friend Henriette works at a brothel. And it's mentioned that this could be a possibility for, for her as well. Uh, so like a guy who mentions it, the character Usson, and he confesses also his desire for Séverine. And this sort of catalyzes events leading her to seek out the brothel. The, the sort of daydreaming that she indulges in and the demands of her job become stranger and more mysterious. And in particular, there's one scene that really like intrigued me it's her daydream about being pelted with thick black mud yeah. by Pierre and Usson they call her slut the entire time she's wearing like this floating pure white silk dress but it, it's quickly like soiled by dark brown mud hurled at her alongside reams of insults by her husband's friend and like it looks like a very Grecian gown almost yeah it's like a little like a toga mm. yeah yeah, it's it's like elevating her to kind of goddess status, but also brings her back down to earth as she's being pelted with mud. I just feel like this is such a great scene because it sort of reveals how conflicted she is in regards to Usson's advances. And it constructs a fantasy of living out illicit unconscious impulses. Like I really think when I watch this movie, I've seen it several times, and it's a great, you know, psychoanalytic movie. I just like to think of it as elaborate fantasies, like the vignette, you know, like all of her experiences at the brothel, I believe, are just, I think they're just in her mind. <laughs> and I think it's some kind of process she's going through to come to terms with her sexuality. Interesting. And, That's yeah, such a good I don't, reading. Yeah, I don't think that any of that really happened. She probably did drive by the brothel. She probably, like, there probably was a friend who worked there, whatever. But I just, it's just because it just gets so sordid, especially towards the end. And I think that she is actively, like, trying to compel herself to explore that side of herself. And it's just all, like, dream sequences. I think you're right, because at the end of the film, sort of like her brothel life kind of comes into her real life and yeah. like her husband gets hurt. And then, but then once like she kind of is able to finally get him to see her as like, uh, as not as this kind of perfect angel, but as this yeah. like sexual person, he like t he gets out of, off, out, of, out of his wheelchair and is like, yeah. and, is, and is like cured. <laughs> it's a great reading. I hadn't thought of that before, but I love that. Thank you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know. I, I agree with that. I think with with the coming together of the two worlds, you can definitely read the idea that her flashbacks kind of collapse into each other in terms of where is reality and fantasy. I think that this is the most complex and interesting of all the films. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? If you're really sort of looking at it from an analytical viewpoint, and I actually think there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities with Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, I was just in thinking In terms that. of yeah. Catherine Deneuve and Emily Brown Browning and the fact that she's trying to orchestrate a way of exploring her own sexuality 
but in a, in a sense that she's remaining in this sort of passive state in many ways. I think what's to me what's really interesting about this film is is it saying that with well, it's saying that women, but maybe all of us, in order to engage with sexual relations, we have to kind of perform in some way. And I don't mean, you know, mm. performing, being able to, <laughs> to be able to do it in, the, in that sense. But I mean, I mean, almost have to kind of leave to one side all of the ways in which society, the family, uh, you know, husbands or wives, our parents construct what we should be. Because if you think about it, none, no, in, in, in most cases, our sexual lives remain very private to ourselves and even probably private from the the people that we're having sex with in many ways. You know what I mean? So it's really interesting how in order to try, I mean, she's got this relationship where she, you know, either can't or won't have sex with her husband. And, you know, there's a sort of sense in which maybe that's to do with traumas from childhood because she has these flashbacks. It's really interesting how the husband is, you know, he's he's not quite Alain Delon, but he's not far <laughs> off. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. there's no reason why she shouldn't be having sex with him. Um, <laughs> but then in order then that she kind of gets over this, it's almost as if she has to become this woman of the, well, woman of the day rather than woman of the night mm. and construct a sense that is, that, that she's completely outside any expectations of what society thinks a woman should should be in in you know polite civilization kind of thing yeah and i think I, I think that's really interesting if you widen it out to the way that that we consider what what it is to be a a sexual person i mean this is an extreme example of that but do we all sort of construct a sexual self in order to engage in in you know sexual relationships that is somehow completely disassociated from who we are the rest of the time. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I think Zizek says something about that, and I can't remember the quote at all, but I feel like he talks about this in Pervert's Guide Mm. to Cinema Mm. um, to a certain extent about, like, whether, you know, two people having sex, like, also have this, like, this all of this kind of imaginary stuff in between them. So... Because if if you think about it, in both... Like there's the scene with the, the 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 professor with the role play, yeah, who's which is just so rid- ridiculous and risible. But that's him doing the same thing. He has to role play in order to become a sexual being, and it's the same with the guys in Sleeping Beauty, which is something that is kind of ridiculed yeah. when you know old men are kind of like dressing up in all the tuxedos and they want to have naked women going around. It's like very eyes wide shut. This is kind of ridiculed and and becomes a cliche. Yeah. But it really is the same as what Catherine Deneuve is doing. It's like she has to kind of become somebody else or at least put on uh, a fantasy scenario in order to in, to enter into the, uh, the, the possibility of being a sexual being. Mm. Mm, well said. I think it's interesting that um, I was thinking that it was similar to Sleeping Beauty in, and I was thinking about why people are quite offended by Sleeping Beauty that I speak to and um, are not by this film. And I wonder if that's because in this film you have access to her fantasies. Mm. And it's yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, and whereas this film, whereas Sleeping Beauty, they, there actually are hints at her, as you said, Dario, at her, what her fetish is. But they're very, very subtle hints. And if you don't, you yeah, might not yeah, pick yeah. up on them. So you might not credit her with having any kind of agency or sexuality. So maybe that's, yeah, that's possibly why it's mm. so difficult for people. And 
And the the other big similarity for me is that they both they both kind of promote or evoke this idea that sex is com- completely in the imagination of women, mm. but in the action of men. <laughs> so what sex Ooh. actually is is defined by you know a kind of much more feminine conception of 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 what it is but because of society and because of power and all of that kind of stuff it's just in the action of what men do that that we tend to sort of see it mm-hmm. but really you know what sexuality is is what like for us men it's kind of like what do women actually want that's that's the big question we know what we want it's it's fucking obvious do you know what i mean we're never gonna tell you you know but it's like that's the whole thing about about the yeah exactly it's about the mystery and why men are so shit scared about women who have got sexual power you know as as we've seen in some of these other movies it's the same in um eyes wide shut like it's like a um, woman's sexual fantasy just basically sets this guy off like (laughs) odyssey of of sexual failure like absolutely wow yeah he's like i can't believe that she has a sexual imagination beyond my penis (laughs) how can that possibly be true and it's like when when you you know (laughs) Because my because that's what men are like. It's like that the, the, all there is is my penis, and that, when that's satisfied, that's what sex is. That's the action. Oh my god! I want but really that. sex is the imagination of the woman. <laughs> I want like a new cut of Iris my shot, which is just Tom Cruise going around New York City, going, "What about my penis?" My penis. <laughs> <laughs> and he would do it so well. Like he would be so good, just shouting that line. He'd be perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. perfect. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Amazing. Dario, I think you've actually given me a lot of closure when I think back on some, like, former experiences I had. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to be of service. You've really, like, yeah, you've resolved a lot of issues for me. (laughs) Well, actually, this might turn into what do men really think episode? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. This has been so much fun. Yeah, very edifying. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much, Dario, for coming on as a guest. I know that you're, you're a longtime friend of the pod and we've loved having you here. It's been so much fun talking to you. No problem. Absolutely my pleasure. And I think, you know, you guys are doing something that I don't think is being done elsewhere in, in sort of film podcasting. So uh, long may it continue. Aww. Thank you. Well, enjoy the football. <laughs> no, you've got to cut mention. that out. <laughs> That's really terrible, really. You know, we should. I, I should be going and watching another erotic movie with my partner, but really, I'm just going to go watch Frenchman and Englishman kicking a windbag around. Well, it sounds very homoerotic to me, so. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, maybe. Erotic football. <laughs> en- enemies to lovers storyline. <laughs> um. Thank you so much, Sarah, for this amazing Also Rans episode and for this entire series. Yes, and thank you to our listeners who have like really stuck by us and we have, we're really glad that they've been enjoying our work. Yeah, stay tuned for our poll for the next series. Oh. and it's, It has enjoy- to be tech. <laughs> it has to be tech. Like, that's what we're instructing you to vote for. <laughs> And follow us in all the usual places. Actually, Dario, do you want to quickly plug Cinematologists? Yeah, if you, I mean, you could just search Cinematologist podcast on Google. You know, you can get get us get us everywhere. So it's not it's not difficult. Um, we are screening Blood Simple on the twentieth 
at the Garden Cinema in London. So if anybody is around, there are tickets available. So just go onto the, the Garden Cinema's website and uh, we'll be back in the new year with more live screenings in and around London. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thanks, guys. This has been a blast. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Dario. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.